0: everyone and welcome to another homegrown edition of Cisco Champion Radio. Today we have Dave Malik talking through some cool stuff with us. Dave, why don't you give us a quick intro or overview of who are you and what do you do?
1: Thank you. I'm a Cisco Fellow and Chief Architect in our customer experience organization within Cisco. And I drive architecture strategy across our enterprise and our service provider business, working very closely with our large customers, and then driving those requirements into our engineering organizations as we build our products.
0: Cool. Question, how does one become a Cisco Fellow? I'm like good, dying good to know. Question. Maybe it will. Is it a concise thing or is it like details?
1: <laughs> no, it's actually a, a fairly rigorous and structured program as mm. we have our... Um, Principal engineers, architects, distinguished engineers, and fellow is the, uh, uh, the top title in, uh, in the technical ranks within Cisco Yep. Uh, with the breadth and depth and obviously uh, having industry influence. So there's uh, several folks, um, you know, not too many in, in the Cisco family across various business units, and, um, you know, they drive long-term direction for the company.
0: Okay, so I should have brought my A game today. Fun. Bruno, why don't you tell us, who are you and what do you do?
2: Sure. Um my name is Bruno Walman. I'm a self-employed uh, network architect. Um you can find me on my website at brunowalman.com or on Twitter at bruno.
0: Ah, uh, a little late to the Twitter game maybe. Little or you late. were just being creative.
2: I just didn't use it for the first uh, few years.
0: Uh, GJ, who are you? What do you uh what do you do?
3: Hi, my name is Gert Jan de Boer. Uh, in short, GJ, because my name is unpronounceable in English. I've tried, a... man.
0: <laughs> and then you laugh at me, so.
3: <laughs> Case in point. So I'm a CTO for Azu, which is a Dutch uh, Cisco reseller, and we specialize in networking and security.
0: Awesome. Jason, last but certainly not least, who are you? What do you do?
4: Hi there. Uh, I'm Jason De Silva. I'm a senior network architect for Shaw Communications, which is a cable MSO based in Canada.
0: Awesome. All right. So back to our fellow, Dave, What what's the kind of cool thing we're talking about today?
1: Yeah, one of the interesting topics in the industry is really around multi-domain. Uh, as our customers are building out, whether cloud strategies, their data center, SD-WAN, security, all of these domains need to connect together. And what we really want to get across uh, in the industry is how are these multi-domain strategies uh, becoming more flexible, more agile, and more secure through intelligent networking. It's really about intelligent networking and making sure we get the right device or the app to the right application at the right time.
2: Perfect. I think uh, my first question here for you, Dave, is that um, when we originally spoke, it was we were talking about network automation and things like that. Uh, when your group gets... Uh, Engaged by a company to work on their network automation tools and bringing the right devices with the right apps together, Um, culture is is a big thing to overcome in organizations. Is that a solved problem when you when you finally engage with these uh, companies, or are your resources having to um, you know deal with the culture change and the culture shock and the fear of losing jobs and things like that to
1: automation? that's an interesting question. I think some of those cultural conversations tend to be sometimes even more challenging than the technical ones themselves. So it is an evolution. And I think as more and more customers and engineers and architects who are running very large scale networks today realize that the repetition of tasks that they're doing at scale could be automated and they can use their capabilities to drive value add to their organizations, things become interesting. Now, the other area is that in order to do that, the software proficiency and skill set becomes very important. And that is where the learnings, the trainings, the career certification that Cisco is offering, and we're working hand in hand with our customers as well, becomes important from a career development perspective. So those things are becoming very important. And more importantly, if we look at a top-down approach from a CIO perspective, you know, our organizations that we're seeing are becoming more horizontal, so we will have exports in networking, compute, storage, and cloud, and so on. But these horizontal teams allow these individuals to cross pollinate and get deeper skills, and that really enriches them to drive forward.
2: Perfect. And when you're you're talking multi-device, like. Uh... You know, Cisco has a lot of great products uh, across network automation and applications and um, networking. Um, there's a lot of places where it's not such a homogeneous environment like that. Are you driving standards or helping to drive standards across uh, networking protocols and,
1: and uh, products? That's another great question. One of the key things we brought ourselves at the, at the platform level, at the hardware level or the software level from a business unit we want to make sure we expose industry-stranded protocols, whether it's NetConf, whether it's Yang, um, GRPC, whether the telemetry-based protocols, we want to make sure our customers can interface with these devices through open APIs. You know, REST being obviously very popular as well. Now, other vendors are exposing very similar protocols. What that allows us to do is to build automation frameworks. And we have frameworks for our service provider segment, which is dominant in the large operator space. And then obviously mobility uh, as we go from 4G to 5G, but also on the enterprise space, which customers are extending their enterprise into the public cloud, regardless of the vendor underneath, as long as the protocols are exposed and we're making sure we abide by those protocols and we are in the industry standard bodies such as ONAP and others, Then from a CX perspective, from a customer experience perspective, we can start layering software layers to abstract in a multi-vendor environment, but also in a brownfield environment because we do realize many infrastructures today are not just buying more hardware, they're actually extending into the public cloud. So we have to make sure the cloud provider integration is there as well. So multi-vendor brownfield and cloud ready is very important with these industry standard protocols.
2: And are you using? Um, you mentioned brownfield environments. Are you trying to optimize what uh, what your customers are already using uh, for those tools, or are you proposing new tools? You know, a gradual shift or uh, you know, accelerating uh, learning
1: plans and things like that to get
2: them moving forward.
1: It's a little bit of both. We understand um, we live in a you know capex tight environment as well as opex, so customers have plethora of tools and the last thing they want is to buy 10 more tools and not get rid of any. So one of the clear strategies is really, Hey, if I want to invest in tools that can help me drive forward with a cloud mindset, what can I get rid of that I have today? That's one. Two, it has to be cloud ready or cloud capable. And three, it has to have open interfaces. So the typical automation tools that we clearly see in the market, which I think some of them are open source as well, whether they're Ansible, or Terraform, we have our own network services orchestrator. And then we have Cisco specific controller tools uh, like DNA Center, APIC for ACI and so on. So the, the homogeneity is very important, but also having the differences is very important. If so a lot of our customers have Ansible for example, and we will drive a large automation program and we will have to integrate with Ansible and Terraform. And that's something that they've already invested in. So that integration is extremely important to drive that outcome for a customer based on the workflows that drive their business outcome. And can you talk about a typical
2: engagement with a customer because there's so many products out there? Like, do you send in a uh, you know, a recon team to see what they have first and then you know which experts to bring in, whether it's an Ansible expert or a Terraform expert, uh, just how that evolution of a project uh, uh, goes about uh, with your organization?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really not a mystery. Um, It is a life cycle based approach. You know, we're very consultative with our clients, understanding what their outcomes need to be, and then making sure we understand what they have today, of course, not just from a tooling perspective, capabilities perspective, but also from a skill set. And then the internal processes, because processes can kill any program. We have to understand how this firm actually runs and operates their their procedures, whether it's in a NOC, whether it's an engineering or whether it's an architecture. Once we get a lay of the land through a consultative engagement and we advise them, then we can drive a journey map for them for a two to three year architecture approach in terms of what phases and milestones we need to drive to get incremental outcomes on very specific use cases. Now everything is use case driven because that allows us to really piecemeal the bigger problem to get to the end goal. Let me give you an example. The end goal could be, I want to have a self-driving network, which is kind of a marketing term. But ultimately, we want more and more areas in the infrastructure to heal themselves if there's a problem. Or we have to drive themselves with some adult supervision, as we call it. (laughs) But initially, today, more and more customers are still using their fingers on keyboard to drive automation, which is not what we want. So we take some of those use cases. For example, one of them happens to be software conformance, which is a very large one where a customer is saying, I want to make sure I have good software hygiene, whether it's in my compute plant or my networking plant. And I have, let's say half a million devices. But I want to start with the branch first, then the data setter, et cetera. So I want to make sure my software is always patched. It's not open to bugs that I'm susceptible to, field notices, cert advisories. So we take that use case and we build a software conformance automation use case with the right tooling. And then they start seeing results. And now as these tools and apps are built, the customer or a client can customize it further and drive it. Or if they feel um, they would like Cisco to operate the environment for them, we do that as well. So we're very, very flexible in guiding them to their outcome.
0: So for that software conformance, is that a use case for like the CI, CD?
1: That's a good question. Yeah, so, yeah, I
0: so learned software. a new
1: acronym today. So. There you go. Um, software conformance is, is a big word, meaning make, making sure we have the right level of hygiene. Now, CI CD or continuous integration, continuous deployment, and I like to add CT at the end for continuous testing because you always want to test before you deploy, it's very important. So, CI CD becomes a methodology or a discipline that we follow working with a client with a software mindset. So making sure everything is thought of in a service release fashion. So for example, if you pushed out a change to 10,000 devices on a Saturday night and Monday morning, maybe didn't go as well as you planned, and you want to roll back. Rolling back 10,000 devices through with the human interfaces is really not going to happen. You're gonna cause more damage. So it's a full release cycle we use Git repos. We have a full CI/CD pipeline and we can roll back to the prior Service build similar to what we do in applications in a cloud environment, so infrastructure truly becomes code. Cool.
3: So this all sounds this all sounds very specific to uh to a customer. How repeatable is the process? Are you like writing standards or something along the lines of a, a validated design or a document to help people?
1: Very good question. So we have frameworks. You know, frameworks obviously are building blocks without any vendor specific um, products. Then we build architectures, how these components or building blocks connect to each other. And then ultimately you, you put the product in the, the appropriate device or the box. Now what happens is in our engagements, we see even between service provider and enterprise, 60 to 70% of the use cases are very similar. Everyone has a software conformance requirement. Everyone has a requirement for firewall policy automation because they all have a perimeter, soft or hard, and so on and so on. Everyone has a branch office today. They're doing SD-WAN or SASE implementation. So what we do is when we are in engagements, a lot of that work is repeatable. I would say 70 to 80, in some cases, 90, depending on how complex the program is. And that knowledge and experience now can be shared and leveraged across the subsystem in other engagements with clients, that allows us to drive a faster delivery motion to an outcome that a customer can realize with their metrics. And then obviously, from a business perspective, it helps, you know, keep our costs down as well, because we're driving high repeatability with lower risk, because nobody wants to buy a car that was just made for them only, as an example.
4: Given that that a lot of the use cases you encounter are similar between your different customers. What's what. Uh, what- similar problems do do you come across with customers as they try and implement a lot of your strategies?
1: Yeah, another great question. One is talent is always challenging because the software skill set and cloud skill set is still not as everyone would like in the industry. I think we all agree because the cloud industry and the software industry is just going so far. But the key is how do we take a software mindset and also add domain-specific knowledge, which is essential. So we have thousands of CCIEs out there. We have a DevNet program that we're educating in, in in free communities to help customers understand about programmability and automation. So the talent piece I think is probably on the top of my list to making sure that mindset and skill set is there. And then they marry the domain expertise, the folks that are very deep in networking, very deep in security with Some of the folks that are familiar with infrastructure as code that know Terraform, that know Python, things of that nature. And then when you meld them together, that is really when you have magic because you want the technical folks who have deep knowledge, who've been at this for 20, 30 years, and the folks that are very specific on programming skill sets coming together to drive an outcome.
4: Is that easy for organizations to overcome or, or how, how do they go about actually doing that? I mean, saying it is one thing, but obviously implementing it and doing it is always going to be another.
1: It's a top-down initiative. It has to be uh, because it requires organizational upgrades. Let's just call it from a skill set perspective, training perspective as well, and career development. So most of the firms that we're working with in the enterprise and in SP and, and, and obviously the cloud folks, which are a little bit further along, They have very specific programs and then now they're tying into MBOs or management by objectives for their engineering teams to say every year, we want to try to automate five to 10% of the tasks that you do that are very repetitive. So it kind of builds it in the culture. It shouldn't be a bolt on where you have to force somebody. It should be in the normal case of motion. And if everybody's going down that path, you know, everybody wins at the end of the day. But it is a cultural shift, I think, as it was commented earlier.
4: 5 right, to 10%, that almost sounds like a prescription for baby steps. Take it slowly, take it easy,
1: don't Absolutely. bite off too much at once. And then you feel comfortable, then you can let the machines take over a little bit more as the comfort factor increases and you get comfortable with the risk factor that you're taking. Because there's always a concern, our machine is going to take over my job or our machine is going to destruct. Because if you automate bad things with bad data, you can destroy your network. So it can hurt you on the other way. So that's why checks and balances and having domain expertise is still very relevant to make sure the checks and balances are there. And more importantly, security is top of mind in any automation program because holes, if they're left exposed, whether it's in a perimeter or in a host or in even a, let's say a VPC in, in AWS for that matter, if you're working in the public cloud environment, just to pick on them, um, that has dramatic uh, implications. So security is top of mind. Is
2: security the driver for all of this automation? I, I find it in some of my customers. they uh, it's not a, it's not the speed of deployment um, or speed to to deliver a service or an application. It's they're worried about um, security and uh, the new. Uh, CVE comes along and they've got to upgrade a whole bunch of devices. And that's kind of what's driving my customers to look at um, network automation so they can respond to security events faster. Is that what you're seeing as well? Or what's what's driving Cisco to, to develop um, a program like this? Uh, what are you hearing from your customers?
1: Yeah, I think you hit on the software conformance use case, the CVE example. So security is definitely one of the top use cases. Um, but what I like to kind of call it is we want to drive speed with safety, right? So there's no sense in driving a car at hundred miles an hour. If you happen to be in the U S with no seatbelt. So we want to make sure safety is part of every single engagement. It's very, very important. And more importantly, uh, as our customers are now extending their enterprise and building very large infrastructures in the public cloud with the large providers, um, Speed is always there to your point, but is safety there or not. So you can drive large scale automation in the public cloud and security is definitely top of mind. The last but not least, when we talk about security, by default, it is a multi-vendor environment. No one has one security vendor. Many customers have 50, 100, depending on how large your enterprise is. So security and automation in a multi-vendor environment becomes even more complex and that is an area where people want centralized policy management and that policy to be rendered through a manifest across any vendor in the environment to enforce that policy that that uh, a risk or compliance officer or a technical team have put together.
0: So are you deploying SecureX or is that kind of in the... Because I love SecureX and it, it works across multiple vendors. And
1: Yeah, SecureX is starting to get deployed. It is, we just announced it, I think a few months ago. So yes. that is starting to become... More, Sorry more to name popular. drop on you. No, it's great. Oh, thank you. So it is our direction in the security business to drive that across all of our different products in the product line and then eventually get into a third party. Um, that is a piece of the broader security puzzle, but we do understand there are multiple vendors out there, thousands yeah. of them that our customers use. And the uniformity of how do you drive policy and how do you drive conformance and how do you drive reattestation of rules? Because what happens is, Sometimes you have rules in the environment, and they never go away. People go away, contractors, but the rules never go away. So how do you know that exposure still lasts when an employee has left the corporation? So those things are really important from a security perspective to make sure we don't have any zombie rules that could have exposed the firm.
0: Like ACL spaghetti code, basically.
1: Yeah, ACLs is is one form of it, and more and more customers are moving towards zero trust. Basically, don't trust anyone, deny everything, and then permit very explicitly what you would like. And that is the model people are stepping towards uh, in various pockets. And then eventually, as the tools and automation are there and the visibility and analytics, then we will see more and more of that zero trust extend across the enterprise and SP segments.
2: You added a uh, an acronym to the... CICD that we all know, and that's the continuous testing. And I think the, the model you've used so far is a perfect example of, uh, you know, self-driving cars, you know, self-driving network wearing your seatbelt. Um, you go get your car fixed, and uh, often there's a test drive after. How do you apply that continuous testing to production networks? Um, you know, there's... Uh, you know, here the last few years, the case made for uh, SRE engineers and uh, chaos engineers and things like that. Do you do you go that far as well? And if you do, if you're breaking networks for a living, do you have a job opening? Because I'm good at oh, that.
0: Wait, wait, what's SRE again?
1: Uh, site reliability engineer.
0: Okay, back to you, Dave. Just want to get the clarification.
1: That's all good. Yeah, cyber-reliability engineering is a discipline Google started more than a decade ago, and then in earnest, six, seven years ago, started publishing documentation, and that's become kind of a gold standard as a guideline and how we take automation and apply it to really an operations-centric environment where reliability and security are the two most important um, areas to watch. Um, just back to your uh, continuous testing. Today, most of the CICD and CTs happening in pre-production, Meaning I have new code drops that constantly being thrown out there every night, every hour, depending on your application development environment. We have multiple vendors extending their pipelines as well through Jenkins, Artifactory, so on, and other tools that you're familiar with. And they're going through this continuous test through different stages of the pipeline, as we call it. Now test plans, we codify our test plans. The days of having a human operator executing 500 tests on a keyboard are gone because Humans are slow when we make mistakes. So now we have all of these tests automated, as many as we can in a multi-vendor environment with some of our large operators, and that is in production. So now we can run new releases and see the effect of that release before it goes into production. And once it goes through user acceptance testing, then it's ready for a full CD in production to your point. And some customers are going that far as well. But mostly in the infrastructure, I noticed a lot of it's done pre-product to UAT, this entire pipeline. And more importantly, what's interesting in testing, we will break something potentially and we will find defects. So why not automate finding those defects and getting them reported back to the provider of that software, whether it happens to be Cisco or VendorX. So now all that paperwork and documentation going back and forth is completely automated. Builds are posted, defects are found, issues are flagged they get documented, you have a vicious cycle and that gets repeated, repeated, repeated. And when anything in the stage fails, you can get an update on your Slack channel or your favorite way of consuming notifications. Um, So it becomes very digitized as well.
0: So I was wondering, apologies to all the champions, um, you know, you were talking about setting up two to three architectures. And then uh, in, you know, mid-March, everything went crazy. So how many of those did you end up having to revisit, go back to? How, how, was, the, how was March for you?
1: Yeah, I mean, most of the, most of the architectures that are going out there, um, we spend a lot of time in testing. Because revisiting, sometimes you have to do it because the requirements may change with a customer. Um, but we spend more time in testing and validating. And the key is making sure that the requirements are there uh, well-documented through the normal process, through Rally, Jira, you build user stories. We have scrum teams that we run mm-hmm. with our customers. We have pipelines that extend It's a full-on DevOps model. Every two to three weeks, our customers get drops. We're co-developing. So it's a very symbiotic relationship with our customers. Um, But yeah, once in a while, when something goes into production, it has to be modified or you have to kind of add to what you already deployed. And then there's a whole change request process that we work with our customers on.
0: Okay. I guess I was more thinking, you know, suddenly everyone in, at least in the US or a lot of folks had to work from home all of a sudden, right? So I was just wondering how many teams or how many companies were like, oh, we need to change our plans completely for what we want intended to do. But maybe you didn't, maybe you were not as impacted by that.
1: I mean, we are seeing, or we have seen a lot of demand mm-hmm. uh, for a couple of areas for automation. One is my perimeter is extending, meaning my home office is now my branch office, mm-hmm. and I have 50,000 of them overnight. <laughs> also, my perimeter is extending quickly into the public cloud, which I didn't expect because I can't deploy more capacity in my physical data center. So now my perimeter is extending my edge of my network, which scares me dramatically. How do I make sure my enterprise in in this case is still protected as my perimeter is extending to every household of my employee, extending into the public cloud way faster than I ever imagined. The only way to do that is to have centralized policy and, and control. So a lot of requests on perimeter, a lot of requests on having uniform connectivity and the last but not least, how do we, make a remote worker experience an enterprise class experience. So making sure they have the right voice quality of experience, video and, and data of course. So these things become extremely important while I secure every single branch, which is a home now. So that has been a, a huge skyrocketing thing. And we've built many offers in our customer experience team for their next gen remote worker. And also, customers who are trying to migrate um, a lot of their workload or extend their enterprise into the public cloud, which is we see that happening more and more after March. Awesome.
4: Are there are there any domains or disciplines that customers come to you with use cases for that you don't feel are appropriate for automation, and uh, you know maybe tell them that things aren't there yet, that that now is not the right time, or even the technology is not there. Is, is there anything that's off the table here?
1: It's a good question. I mean, we will obviously gravitate more towards. Uh, things that are wheelhouse that can be absorbed. There's no reason um, we would go after a, a, a an engagement with a customer that would be a one-off. We try to avoid one-off because, like I said, you're you're building a car for one customer. How safe is that car over time and for somebody driving it? Um, the, the more popular domains are obviously security, uh, perimeter, cloud, SD-WAN, campus, and then the less popular domains, I'm not saying they're not popular, but the less demand we see, it's, it's less, on more on, less on the IoT side for now. Um, a little bit less on the collab because most of the collab, if not all of the collaboration tools are SaaSified. We have a WebEx platform and there's others out there. So there's less demand for automation for collab because there's no there are no endpoints. Everyone's working on a soft phone or a video phone. So it's very SaaSified already. So I would say collaboration would be a little bit less, but security and others are uh, and networking are more prominent.
4: Yeah, that makes sense. There's a lot of cloud, cloud apps nowadays. But you, there's no reason why you can't automate or apply this kind of approach to existing SaaS applications too within your environment.
1: There's still a lot of infrastructure that needs to be maintained by your own internal teams. You can. So where the application is being hosted, it's in a SaaS property. Um, but what's being automated is how do I get access to that SaaS property? For example, I want my 15,000 branches that came up overnight to have the best experience in accessing O365 applications and Salesforce applications. Now we need to make sure that the connectivity or the quality of experience, as we call it, the QOE is optimal with the right amount of latency, the right amount of jitter, um, and traffic rerouting, those are all networking domains which are in our wheelhouse, but the customer just wants to access the O365 in a very meaningful and secure way. So that is how we're automating access to SaaS rather than the SaaS application, which obviously we do not have control over.
3: You were saying earlier that uh, you're also making use of open source projects. There are a lot of uh, open source projects in the automation world, like for example, Netbox, uh, Ansible, like you mentioned. Uh, Is your team also actively uh, contributing to those uh, projects?
1: Yes, very good question. So Cisco in general is fairly active in the open source community, even in the Kubernetes community, if you look at the upstream Uh, numbers. On the automation side, we recently are contributing a lot of the work um, that we've done with one of the large SP operators for automation. And it's using your traditional tools, but we've put some glue on top using Prometheus, typical Elk stack, a couple of databases, and really allows you to normalize a lot of the different streams of data and normalize them and then publish them out on a Kafka topic that somebody can consume in a northbound system, whether it's an OSS, BSS, that normalization and reducing the the noise from the signal, you know, putting it out there. Uh, In our own products or solutions that we build in our customer experience team, a lot of it's really heavily using open source. And the key, behind that is that we are curating them. Um, Open source is out there and a customer uh, can go out and take on 10 or 15 projects and put them together, but now you have to upkeep them. Be aware of the distributions, the patches, who's updating those patches? Is that source reliable? We don't know. So we curate a lot of these programs and then bring them together. To give you an example, typical ELK stack, Prometheus, things of that nature are very common. Kafka, whether using MongoDB, Uh, using API gateways, whether you're using large-scale message buses that are out there, um, Elasticsearch. These are household names that people use today um, that we use in our broader frameworks because everything has to be a microservice. And I can easily extend them to any container-based environment in a public cloud or or wherever you like to run it. So we're heavy users of open source because it accelerates our, our development and the time to market. But we provide the glue and the security and pieces around it.
3: Are you also going to publish uh, like learnings from uh, from the projects you're doing? Uh, like for example, if you have uh, uh, playbooks for Ansible that work well in, in environments, are you going to share them or?
1: Very good point. So we have um, a DevNet community site yeah. where um, you will see a lot of the contribution is coming from the Cisco community, engineers, architects, people who are employed by Cisco, let's just say. So we're publishing everything into that DevNet community as one source where folks can say, for example, uh, Meraki. People want to write some automation for rolling out Meraki cameras or or making changes in an automated way. Well, we've done that. We've published those APIs out there uh, for our customers and they can take those scripts. For example, Terraform. We've published several Terraform scripts and Ansible playbooks that work with various products such as ACI or DNA Center. You can take that playbook, customize it and move on. So the community based approach is definitely there because we want to jumpstart our customers. And more importantly, even with snippets of code. For example, AppDynamics is a very popular product that we have from a network observability standpoint, where we can get very deep application experience, uh, notifications and visibility. And we've published scripts out there and how does one look at different types of numbers or, or observability metrics? And you can take that entire REST code and JSON payload and just put it in your uh, in your script and move on.
2: I find Cisco's in a unique position. You know, your, uh, your organization is automating, in a lot of cases, Cisco networks that are already out there or perhaps going to be purchased. How much of what your people learn are fed back into Cisco to improve uh, Cisco products, whether it be hardware, hardware or software or anything like that? Second part of that question is uh, for cloud too. like if how plugged in are you with uh, the cloud providers so that when there's a change pending or the cloud providers going to change something major in the back end, they kind of, hey, Cisco, this is the, here's a heads up for that.
1: Um, Very good question. So one is we have a continuous loop with our business entities. Those are the ones that build the products themselves. And that's partially you know, part of my role is to bring that feedback. And a lot of our engineers roll that feedback in in where our products are performing, where we need to make enhancements and things that we're learning operationally. I think that is one true value that our organization provides is the operational experience, how customers are actually using our products, how adopting our products and what experience they're getting. But more importantly, If they get stuck in a particular phase of the life cycle for the adoption of that product, why are they stuck? And can we help them because that telemetry and those metrics are extremely important to us and our product development team to keep enhancing how we engage and make the experience for that product or that solution, I like to call it even better. To the second point of your question, how plugged is Cisco in with the typical cloud providers? So I have direct engagement uh, at a senior level at AWS, Microsoft, and obviously Azure, and obviously on GCP side, where there's several programs that are running, some announcements we've made in the past, and obviously you'll see some in the forthcoming future. But more importantly, uh, as our customers are building their enterprises or they're bringing their workloads to the public cloud, and we in customer experience all build, are building our own cloud, it's called Customer Experience Cloud or CX Cloud for short, we are cloud builders as well. So, we're building actively on AWS. Uh, in the long term, what you'll see is the experience that we're getting as cloud builders, also learning from our customers what they're doing, and then more importantly, with the strategic partnerships that we have with the cloud providers, all matched into one, gives us that knowledge of what the cloud infrastructures are doing today and where they will be heading uh, in the future.
2: Yeah, that's good to know is as, as the cloud is eating the IT world. It's good to have a an advocate to, uh, you know, to help with that for customers that, you know, just can't get plugged in. Absolutely.
0: We're here for you at Cisco.
4: <laughs>
0: All right. Are, um Any other questions before we wrap up? Okay, awesome. Well, thank you, everyone. I have personally learned a lot and enjoyed this so hopefully our listeners at home have as well Um, thank you Bruno thank you GJ because I will never pronounce your name to your liking and Jason as well Um, and especially thank you to Dave Uh, one question actually before we hop off I've been staring at your home office for a while now and I see right behind you it says what does it say (laughs) I can't see it right now actually
1: Um, it says mindset is everything
0: and what's that a picture of though because I, I could see that, yes, it's, oh, I see. Okay, sorry, the screen's a little great. So it's a cat looking at a reflection of themselves in a petal and they see a lion. Aw, that's so cute. All right, and on that bit of awkwardness on my end, um, I want to say thank you to everyone. Uh, please feel free to subscribe onto all our various uh, RSS feeds for Cisco Champion Radio. We're on Apple, we're on Google, we're everywhere. Um, Oh, and I forgot to introduce myself. I'm Lauren Friedman, also known on the Twitters as Lauren. Feel free to send me hate mail there. Thank you, everyone.